Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. We've got a special code for podcast listeners that gets you a 20% discount subscription to New Scientist. The code is POD20. Go to newscientist.com slash pod20 to subscribe and you'll get all the contents of the magazine plus audio versions of the stories to listen to in our app. That's newscientist.com slash pod20 to get your 20% discount. Hello everyone, welcome to New Scientist Weekly. It's the show where we explore all the news in science from breakthroughs and discoveries to the mysteries of the universe. I'm your host, Rowan Hooper. And I'm your other host, Penny Sarchet. Now, I just want to say a few words to mark the occasion. This week is the two-year anniversary of the date that the World Health Organization declared the COVID-19 outbreak a pandemic. And according to recorded deaths, more than 6 million people have died. But in fact, some estimates are now suggesting something in the region of 18 or or even 20 million would be a more accurate number. Yeah, it's absolutely horrendous. And of course, you know, we've had coronavirus hit when we already had climate change to contend with. And now we've got conflict as Mm. well. And this week we'll be covering some of the consequences of the war in Europe and of climate change in the Amazon. And yeah, I heard someone this week say history is really failing to take it easy at the moment. Mm, It'd be nice to have a bit of a break, wouldn't it? Yeah. Anyway, shall we introduce the pod? Yes. Yes, let's. So this week we'll be hearing from reporter Adam Vaughan on the energy crisis sparked by the Ukraine war and we've got Matthew Sparks in the pod with us. Hi Matt. Hi there. And we'll also be hearing from tipping point scientist Tim Lenton on the threat to the Amazon rainforest. We've got a lovely interview with the astronomer royal Martin Rees. And if you're getting a bit sick of Earth and I couldn't blame you, uh, we're going off planet and I've got a little quiz lined up for you all. Mmm, I love a quiz. Mm, Yeah. All that, and we're also hearing about virgin birth, an experiment that managed to make a female mouse give birth without her egg ever being fertilised. But we'll start with Ukraine. We're going to talk about Chernobyl and nuclear power in Ukraine later in the show. But first, let's talk about the energy crisis that Russia's invasion of Ukraine has sparked. Adam, you've been reporting on this, and I didn't realise that Germany gets half of its gas from Russia. The rest of Europe gets 41% odd of its gas and almost a third of its oil from Russia. So if we want to sanction Russia, we have to get ourselves off its fossil fuels. So what's the plan? Well, this week we've had some kind of incredible shifts in energy policy. Um, The EU has laid out a plan to cut two thirds of its Russian gas imports by the end of the year, which is like... 100 billion cubic meters of gas it's like a crazy amount it's like of gas massive cold turkey it's like i can't even like begin <laughs> to visualize that for you it's like it's, yeah. it, but it, it's huge but let's just say that and the idea is a big pivot to other sources of gas and renewables as well 
So Franz Timmermans um, of the European Commission, um, he said, it's abundantly clear we're too dependent on Russia for our energy needs. And he was pretty clear about what the answer is. He said the answer to this concern for our security lies in renewable energy and diversification of supply. The latter jargony bit means different sources of gas. So it's a it's a good thing. <laughs> Basically, it speeds up renewables, our uptake of It renewables. should be a good thing. It should be a good thing if they can deliver it. I mean, that is an epic level of ambition. I think politically now it is maybe possible. Um, they can get gas from other countries via tankers. You know, the US is an obvious one. If they manage it, that'll be extremely impressive. But I mean, it's not. It's worth saying it's not just the EU that's turning away from Russian fossil fuels. The UK said that you know, even though it only uh, relies for a very small amount of gas, um, it's going to end all oil and gas imports by the end of the year. And the US has imposed an immediate import of Russian fossil fuels. So there's some really dramatic seismic energy shifts going on. Yeah. What about like a concerted campaign of? energy efficiency and reducing demand could that help so that's really interesting so there's a lot of talk last week with the international energy agency last week saying talking about turning down your thermostat and there were energy academics in the uk telling mps this week that that is certainly one a good thing you can do very quickly is turn your and i've seen people you know on social media or taking things into their own hands has already right in doing this what's interesting is sort of reducing energy although the EU Energy Commissioner this week said that you know that is part of it. It wasn't really the focus of their plan. You know, their focus is really about replacing that gas and doubling down on renewables. So, but I think the challenge is so great that uh, you know on the supply side that reducing demand is going to have to be part of this. And what's interesting is you're seeing that already happening. The so-called sort of demand destruction, where prices get so high that certain industries already you know start curbing themselves. Yara International, a big fertilizer firm, it started already curbing production in Italy and France because of high gas prices. So some of that is going to happen voluntarily. Some of it's going to happen just because companies can't afford to pay the prices. And lastly, there's this big um, oil conference going on in Houston at the moment. And I saw the mood there was quite bullish, actually, because the price of crude oil is so high. You know, you'd expect <laughs> that. But, uh, you know, it's strange. But and, and then we even have, you know, Boris Johnson saying, oh, maybe we could get a climate change pass. And, uh, you know, make more fossil fuels domestically to plug the gap. Now, I can probably guess your answer, but what do you think of that? I'm not going to pretend that we can drop oil and gas today. Uh, clearly, large parts of our industry and also large parts of our energy sectors still rely on it. Uh, and it's going to take time to replace that with renewables. But I think also it's clear that for any sort of medium or long term response to this crisis, the answer is not to pump more oil and gas because... <laughs> It, I mean, that is one yeah. thing the UK has looked at and the UK's climate advisors were very clear just a few days ago saying that, you know, the amount that you, AKA you could produce is not going to change international prices. And also, it's not going to happen quick enough. You know, this stuff, it takes years to find good sites and to go through all the regulation and building all the kit to start pumping it out. So I clearly don't think doubling down on oil and gas production elsewhere is, is the answer. Um, this really is the point to pivot to more efficiency, more renewables, more of those technologies on, that have been on the horizon like green hydrogen and, and start making them a reality today. Thanks, Adam. Now, next up, we're moving seamlessly from Ukraine to parthenogenesis, and that's the ability of some organisms to reproduce without using a fertilised egg. 
Yeah, and this process is often referred to as virgin birth, as no male input is needed. It's quite common among plants, and various animals can do it too. Things like Komodo dragons, some sharks. I always love a good story of like an aquarium that's shocked that yeah. a lone female has suddenly reproduced. Um, but it's not something that mammals like us can do. And now a team in China have managed to make it happen in mice. Wow. And so what happened there? So they needed to get around something called imprinting. If you remember, you get one set of chromosomes from each of your biological parents, but some of the genes in these chromosomes need to be turned off. Otherwise, you get too many instructions being turned into proteins. They can clash with each other and cause all sorts of problems. This is called imprinting, and you have different patterns of imprinting on the chromosomes you get from your father and your mother. So that obviously it's going to be a problem if you've got no biological father. Yeah. So, of course, the main hurdle to creating an embryo from an unfertilized egg cell is that it only contains one set of chromosomes and you need two. You've only got the maternal set. You can't just simply use trickery to double that set because then you only have maternal imprinting on both sets of the chromosomes and you miss the necessary complementary pattern that you'd get if you had a sperm cell involved. Right. So how did they get around that? You, I'm sure you won't be surprised to hear that a form of CRISPR was involved. Um, so the team created eggs with two sets of chromosomes by first adding back the DNA that gets lost in the early steps of, of making an egg cell. And then they used a form of CRISPR gene editing to change some of the imprinting. There's loads of research into making embryos and live animals without sperm or without even eggs. Why are we doing this? Yeah, so obviously there's the sort of fundamental biology, the principle of science to some extent is, do we really understand something if we can't muck around with it and predict what's going to happen? Beyond that, potentially there are uses if we can develop these technologies, like maybe you could breed farm animals that don't produce males because we usually just want the females for things like eggs and milk and meat. And there is a lot of interest in whether it might be possible to one day conceive children in, in slightly different ways. So perhaps you wouldn't need a biological dad or you could have someone who's descended from two biological mums. There's obviously big ethical considerations here. You know, this is one for society to address, not just the scientists. And <laughs> yeah, it, without even wading into any of that, just from a really basic perspective, I've always found with these experiments, the sheer number of animals that have to go through an experimental pregnancy just to get these kinds of results. Like if you remember Dolly the sheep and when we talk about things like trying to de-extinctify uh, mammoths, um, the number of elephants you'd have to put through this, I find all of that quite hard to stomach. Now, we've seen in a paper published this week that more than three quarters of the world's largest rainforest has become less resilient to drought since the early 2000s. And this raises fears of the Amazon passing a tipping point that could flip the entire system from forest to savanna. Rowan spoke with Tim Lenton of the University of Exeter about the study. Tim is an earth system scientist and colloquially around New Scientist Towers, he's, he's sort of known as the tipping point guy. So, Tim, can you help us grasp just how big a deal it is? How bad would it be if we lost the Amazon? Oh, if we lost the Amazon rainforest, it would be a catastrophe for the biosphere and biodiversity, losing a major crucible of biodiversity. But it'd also be a catastrophe for the climate because it will reinforce warming. About 90 billion tonnes of carbon dioxide could be added to the atmosphere. But also you change cloud cover um, you certainly change the regional climate over South America quite profoundly. It would have damaging effects into all of the crop growing regions in the centre of Brazil. 
it would have knock-on effects for rainfall down the line of the Andes heading southwards. Mm-hmm. And it has what are called teleconnections by scientists. But, you know, you basically reorganize the atmospheric circulation to a degree. And that sort of has these knock-on effects in other parts of the world, particularly in the tropics. Yeah, no, I remember um, about 10 years ago in, at New Scientist, uh, I remember you you were known as the tipping point guy. <laughs> <laughs> um, but can you explain what we mean about first in the context of the Amazon? Because it's not like a yeah. chair leaning back that's suddenly going to crash down, is it? So whenever you have a tipping point in a complex system, it means that there are some reinforcing feedbacks or amplifying feedbacks in that system that can get so strong that under particular conditions, they kind of take control of the behavior. And at that point, change becomes sort of self-propelling and very difficult to reverse. In the case of the Amazon, there are a couple of crucial reinforcing feedbacks. One is hinging on the fact that the forest recycles its own rainfall And here we have to sort of picture what is often called an atmospheric river flowing in from the Atlantic towards the Andes in kind of the opposite direction to the Amazon River itself underneath. And so the first rains are falling nearer the coast onto the rainforest. The rainforest is then recycling water back into the atmospheric river that then rains out from again and so on and so on. By the time you get over towards the Andes, the rainfall you're depending on is, is the forest is recycled often more than once from the preceding forest. So if you knock out some of the preceding forest, you get this potentially cascading effect. Losing the trees triggers less rainfall, you lose more trees. The other crucial feedback is how the forest maintains a moist climate and suppresses fires. But if things dry out and fires become more rampant, this kills more trees, dries things out more and causes more fires. And as you say, there's the there's a potential cascading effect, isn't there, that it could have effects on the, the Arctic even or the Antarctic. Yeah, if you're feeding carbon back into the atmosphere, you're also affecting the whole, we say, energy balance of the planet and the whole warming pattern. So you've got to think about this as having global impacts. Yeah. There's also a kind of tipping point where it changes the direct, if there is still an atmospheric river that's sort of becoming more of an atmospheric stream, its direction and its course of flow, we think would shift as you lose the forest. And that might take the, the rainfall and the river away from other chunks of the forest. So Yeah. I mean, it's it's really chilling, isn't it? And I remember something that the the late American ecologist Tom Lovejoy said he said, we're seeing the ecological system of South America beginning to come apart. It's such an important, major system. Why, why is it not being treated as a major emergency around the world? That's almost the same question as why isn't the climate emergency being treated as, a, as an emergency around the world? This is one key element of why we're in a climate emergency. I could reel off, you know, five other examples of climate tipping points that we're very close to. And an emergency should be triggering an urgent response. And it isn't triggering a sufficiently urgent response yet. But to answer that question, I think we have to go into the evolved nature of the human mind. The fact that our minds evolved hundreds of thousands of years ago, faced with direct threats of saber-toothed cats or whatever running towards us in the savannah. And we're really good at dealing with these immediate dangers when we can see them threatening us existentially right in front of us but when you get something that feels like hard to get your head around global sort of nebulous sometimes 
that's much harder for us, I think, to kick our inbuilt psychology into and actually treat this with the urgency it deserves. There's also the argument that responding urgently to the problem means transforming everything. It means transforming our economy and our societies, but in many ways for the better with many other collateral benefits for health yeah. and equity around the world. So I think I think the simple answer is some politics is is against urgent action. So you know, given that that's a massive problem to tackle, what can we do on a smaller scale? Like I remember the Environment Minister of Brazil a few years ago saying that rich countries should pay Brazil not to destroy the Amazon. You know, is that something we should think about? Well, that's a legitimate argument, definitely, yeah. because you might unwittingly find your pension fund or some other consumption you're involved or investment you're involved in through hard to trace chains may well be part tied to Amazon destruction. And of course, you've got to consider your diet because cattle ranching is still a major source of forest destruction. But on the positive, this is a system, this is the rainforest after all, it's a system that has ridden out ice ages in the past, it should be pretty resilient. It's it's kind of shocking that we're finding this marked loss of resilience over the last two decades. But if we could turn around the tide of forest destruction and instead get to a place where we'd stop the deforestation and we're even regenerating the forest, then that would give it back resilience against the harder to tackle, slower to tackle issue of climate change. So in that sense, yeah, if we could basically economically incentivize protection and regeneration of the forest over destruction, then we could get give the forest the resilience back. That was Tim Lenton talking about the danger to the Amazon. And Rowan, did you expect the response you got when you asked why it's not an emergency? <laughs> no, I, I was very glad he gave that response. But yeah, he summed up the whole problem with our species there in, in one snappy line. Calling all science savvy learners, New Scientist has an online learning academy tailored to feed your curiosity. Broaden your knowledge through an abundance of immersive and interactive science courses designed by the team at New Scientist magazine, working with a global team of science experts. All our courses are CPD accredited and suitable for any level. Perhaps you'd like to know more on time reversal or teleportation, or maybe you want to understand the science behind health and happiness or maybe even how to keep your brain functioning at its best for longer. Yes, please. Yeah. <laughs> New Scientist Academy is running a huge discount of 50% off each of our science courses until the end of March. Access your course on any internet accessible device and you can complete it at your own pace. Check out newscientist.com courses and use code POD50 to save 50%. Offer ends on March 31st. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hold up. What was that? 
Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. And we're back. And we thought we'd get off the planet for this next segment. Bit of relief. Yeah, yes, we did. We we all would like to do this. Um, things are a bit hot on Earth right now. So let's catch up on some space news and really get away from it all. And look, this is where the quiz comes in. So I want you to close your eyes uh, and listen to this next bit. I have no idea. Some deep geological rumbling. <laughs> No it sounds cry. exactly like a tube train running under a cinema it to me. It does. <laughs> it does now you say that. But uh, no, uh, it was the sound of the Ingenuity helicopter flying on Mars. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah I can I can hear that now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, here's another one for you. It might be a bit less relaxing, this one. <laughs> That's um, swimming underwater, isn't it? I love it, like proper. Now, remember, you know, we're remember vibe. we're off planet here. We're not swimming underwater. S- swimming underwater in a pool on the moon. No, <laughs> no, it's the sound of the. There's a theme here. It's the sound of the Perseverance rover driving on Mars. And here's another one. Any idea what that was? Oh, it's, uh, is it the rover? Uh, Digging, <laughs> measuring, <Nearly>. doing science. <laughs> it, yeah, it is. It is. But uh, okay, I get you. Get half a point for that. It's the rover firing a laser. It's the first laser shots ever fired on Mars. Cool. Uh, that is really cool. <laughs> yeah. And obviously, it's not a laser war. It's the thing doing experiments. It's firing lasers at rocks to measure the sound and the structure of the rock and the surface mm. of it on Mars. But we do actually have some proper Mars news this week. Um, yeah, I was going to ask. <laughs> yeah. So the rover has measured the speed of sound on Mars using lasers, and it's found that it's 240 metres per second, which is slower than the 340 metres per second that we have the speed of sound on Earth. Hmm. Is that something to do with the atmosphere? Yeah. Apparently, because the atmosphere is very thin, carbon dioxide and that uh, that mucks around with it, I think is the technical way of putting it. Does that mean if the speed of sound is slower, does that mean everything sounds lower? Like what we just listened to is is lower in pitch? Yeah, actually what happens, what would happen is if you spoke, then different parts of the of the tones of your voice arrive at different times to the ear. So it would be really, really stretched out and weird mm. and very hard to understand. So, yeah, it really mucks around with, with that. And there is another piece as well this week uh, about China's Zhurong rover on Mars, which is on the the northern lowlands of the planet in a place called Utopia Planitia. And it's found evidence that supports the idea that billions of years ago, there was a vast ocean in that region of the planet, which is very cool. Right, we're going back to the situation in Ukraine now. We're two weeks into the war and there have been several nuclear scares to add to the already terrible situation there. What's the current situation, Matt? Well, first off, uh, we've got Chernobyl. The site was seized by Russians on the first day of the invasion. And the problem there now is that the uh, the site suffered a power cut. 
the plant needs power to maintain its cooling systems. One thing people might not realize about Chernobyl is that it didn't all blow up. There were other reactors on the same location. They weren't damaged and they ran for years after 1986, but they're all being decommissioned now. So we, we need power to keep those reactors cool and to keep the radioactive waste cool as well. We also hear that the containment building covering the damaged reactor can't run its air purifying systems without power. So there's a chance that the warm air within and the cold air outside could cause condensation that would sort of in the long term degrade the stability of the building. But it's not a powder keg, is it? It's not going to blow up. And there are anyway, we've got bigger things to worry about in Ukraine. Yeah, the consensus from the IAEA, the International Atomic Energy Agency and other experts is that the the fuel in, in Chernobyl's cooling ponds, it's many years old now. It doesn't heat up like it once would have. Uh, and these pools, you know, they're big enough to keep things under control for, for quite some time, even without right. power. But the IAEA has said that all of this is putting extra stress on the staff at the site. They're trying to keep things under control without power a lot of the radiation monitors as well that would be feeding information out of the plant are offline so there's a sort of lack of information it's hard to even imagine the stress that the staff must be under with everything that's going on what do we know about the other nuclear sites in ukraine so there's four other operational nuclear power plants in ukraine at least one of them has also been seized by russian troops there's also been damage at some of these nuclear plants caused during fighting, but thankfully they're, they're built to withstand terrorist attacks and uh, even direct impacts from an airliner crash. So the chance that one of them would break open during shelling is pretty small. What are we expecting to happen next? Well, the, the Director General of the IAEA has said several times over recent days that he's willing to travel to Chernobyl, presumably with a, with a team of experts, to help th- keep things on an even keel and ensure that everything is being done to maintain safety. But so far, Russia doesn't seem keen to allow access. So while there's fighting in the country and Russia controls these nuclear sites, it's going to be difficult for anyone else to intervene. Now we've got a real treat in this week's issue of the magazine, an interview with Astronomer Royal Martin Rees. Yes, happy birthday, Lord Rees. It's his 80th birthday soon, and what a career he's had. And if you think about it, in in the 60s, when he started, there wasn't any agreement at all then that the universe began with a Big Bang, and we didn't know anything, hardly anything about black holes, and he's worked on all these things. Mm, Yeah, I mean, an amazing time to be an astronomer. So to mark the occasion, our executive editor, Richard Webb, went round for just a lovely long chat. He started, as you would really, by asking Martin about the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. Even if simple life were common in the universe, intelligent life might still be rare. There may be various bottlenecks that happen during evolution, and we were lucky to get through those. So we've no idea how common intelligent life would be. But there's a reason for having some optimism, because let's realise that in three and a half billion years, we've got from the first life to our life. But the Earth is less than halfway through its life. It'll be six billion years before the sun dies. So one should not think of us as being the end of evolution, the top of the tree. We may not be even the halfway stage. Let's ask what could happen in the next billion years. It won't be humans, but what might happen is that within maybe a few hundred years, due to technology, not to do any evolution, there will be a super-intelligent electronic set of entities. This is, of course, a speculation. It's not crazy to believe in a human enhancement 
by genetic techniques, but there may be limits to flesh and blood brains and uh, maybe electronic engines will take over. And so we would then, in principle, have what I like to call secular intelligent design, uh, where machines of progressively greater capabilities are generated. And of course, they won't stay on the earth. They will uh, perhaps prefer zero G. And if they're near immortal, they won't be daunted by an interstellar voyage uh, so that they, they will spread. And so this is a possible scenario for the future of humanity or post-humans. Now, supposing that that had happened somewhere else, but with a head start, then of course, uh, what we would detect now would be electronic entities, which are the progeny of some long dead flesh and blood civilization. And so my personal view is that if SETI searches get any positive results, seeing some obvious artificial artifact or detecting some transmission, it's unlikely to be a flesh and blood civilization like ours, it's far more likely to be some uh, exotic and possibly malfunctioning electronic entity. Another reason I say that is that if you think of the time spans, our technological civilization is, depending on where, where you start counting, no more than a few thousand years old, and it could be less than another thousand before it's uh, usurped by electronic entities. And that few thousand years is a very thin sliver not only compared to the three and a half billion years of Darwinian evolution, but also compared to the billions of years that lie ahead. And so that therefore means that if there were another planet in the galaxy which had evolved like ours, it would be most unlikely that it was synchronized so that we would catch it in this sliver where it was a flesh and blood civilization. Either it will lag behind, or if it went through the um, flesh and blood civilization phase lo long ago, then uh, it would just have left these electronic remnants. So my view is that if SETI detects anything, it's far more likely to be something electronic. Should we be entirely happy at the prospect of perhaps encountering post-biological <laughs> electronic organisms? Well, of course, this, this raises the question of uh, will they come and eat us, as it were? And of course, there is the famous Fermi paradox, which says that um, partly for the reasons I've outlined, uh, there will be some which have a head start over us, and so why aren't they here already? This is a famous argument. I, I would make two points. The first is, uh, whereas our evolution up till now has favoured intelligence but also aggression, which is why people talk about the aliens being expansionist, etc., this so-called secular intelligence design may favour intelligence, but it may not of expansionist. I mean, these entities may be thinking deep thoughts and uh, not wanting to expand at all. So this means that I think the fact that we haven't been invaded doesn't mean that there's no intelligence out there. It just means that any intelligence is of a non-aggressive nature. And incidentally, there's a famous equation called the Drake equation, which um, is supposed to put in all the factors which determine how likely it is. And that normally puts in a factor um, for the length of a civilization. Most people take a number like a few centuries at most. And uh, that may be right for technological civilization. And of course, if you put that number in, then even the optimists say there wouldn't be many. But if you take my point of view, that's just a transition stage to electronic entities which uh, leave the planet and go on forever, then of course you can be more optimistic. You can say that even if only a tiny fraction 
of planets evolved as far as having intelligent life, then since their legacy lasts for billions of years, then it may not be undetectable. So we have to reinterpret the Drake equation in a more optimistic way. This may be speculation too far, but I wonder about the concentration on electronic organisms. Could we even... There are other forces of nature. In... No, no I, I completely agree that, of course, uh, since we are not the culmination of uh, intelligence and understanding, we've got to be mindful that there could be aspects of reality which are of deep importance, of which we are completely unaware, which our brains couldn't grasp. And so it could be that uh, uh, there is complexity and intelligence out there of a kind which is so different from anything we can envisage or what our minds can grasp. Doesn't that open the door to so many people who think they've seen these things already? I mean, how, how do you distinguish what's credible? Well, the answer is with difficulty. I, I get a lot of letters from people who think they've um, seen aliens, been abducted by them, etc. My line is, do they really think that if the aliens had made a huge effort to come here, they just have met one or two well-known cranks, maybe made a corn circle and gone away again? It doesn't seem very likely, and that's why I tell these people to write to each other and not to me. That's a slightly cynical response, but I think uh, it's possible to be um, open-minded. It's quite possible that there are phenomena, even laws of nature, uh, which we're completely not aware of or which are beyond our brain's capacity to understand. That was Astronomer Royal Martin Rees speaking with Richard Webb, and we'll post a link to the interview in our show notes. Yeah, it's a great interview, and I loved what he says about secular intelligent design. What a legend. That's it for this week. Do rate our show and subscribe and tell all your friends and family to listen. Thanks to our guests Adam Vaughan and Matt Sparks and Tim Lenton too for joining us. I'm Penny Sarche. And I'm Rowan Hooper. Bye for now and take care. Bye. 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 This podcast is produced by OG Podcasts. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.